first time I met Ajahn Chah was at a 10-day retreat that I was doing in the UK in, uh, when I was 18 or 19. And it was about 70 of us young people sitting in quite an intensive Vipassana retreat. It was um, very, um, many of you have done the Vipassana retreats, uh, very intense. Actually, I tried to leave halfway through. But um, as I didn't have any, I got the clicking back. Hmm? Yeah, so I... Um, I couldn't leave because I didn't have any money. So, <laughs> so I did try and hitch out, but no one picked me up, so I had to sort of go back again. So um, anyway, I stuck it out, and I'm still here. But um, yeah, during that retreat, we were sitting there, and uh, like you've all been sitting here, and um, towards the end, uh, the doors at the front of the hall we were in opened and Ajahn Chah walked in with his Western disciple, Ajahn Sumedho. Ajahn Sumedho was very tall and thin and Ajahn Chah was sort of short and round. So they looked quite incongruous together. And <laughs> they had this uh, tremendous vibration that was really magnetic and I immediately felt really impacted by their presence. And the first thing that I saw Ajahn Chah do is that we didn't really understand. I didn't even really know I was doing Buddhism. It was just a meditation retreat. So when we arrived, there was a little Buddha statue. And we were like, oh, yes, okay. we just throw it in the... Threw it in the co- <laughs> didn't quite know what that was either. So Ajahn Chah saw this Buddha like off in the corner and he, he picked it up very reverently and brought it to the center of the room and put it on a table before he'd even said anything. And then he just got down and bowed. And that really was such a complete transmission for me was to experience this complete bow and the way that he did that with such reverence. And I just remember feeling this is the most perfect way of responding to life, is to meet life with this gesture. And so I was so impressed that I actually did sneak out of the retreat to go and listen to him give a talk to students in Oxford. This centre was outside of Oxford. And he gave this talk in Thai, and it was translated. And... All the way through, I was really mesmerized by his dhamma. I could tell that that he had a a very profound depth that he was transmitting, not just through the words, but through his presence. So I was, all all the way through, I was feeling like this is really good, this is amazing, this is great, listening to this dhamma. And at the end of the talk, he said, if you've been sitting here thinking this is good or bad, you haven't been listening properly. And um, then I thought, that's really good. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, it, is, it, did, it did help me understand, and he talked about this often, about listening to Dharma talks, that 
you know, we tend to run, run it through our cognitive mind, which is, of course, it's a cognitive transmission. But um, there is also ways that we can filter it through like, dislike, and so on. And then we start thinking about this and that, or we want to capture it or try and me- remember it. But Ajahn Chah would say, you know, don't, don't try and remember it or just let it land. And that which you will remember will, will stay somewhere in your body, in your being. And if you don't get it this time, you'll get it around the next time. Yeah, so... Um, so he would say, listen with your heart. Listen to the Dhamma with your heart. So just to encourage us all in that way and then, you know, holding this role, trying to speak from that place as well because it's not really, although we think of that my Dharma talk and certainly we all suffer as teachers from our Dharma talks. If they go well, that's great, but when they don't, it can be pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't always go well, so, so there's a certain amount of dukkha in this. But um, yeah, but it's you know just it's uh, also anatta. Uh, Ajahn Charles says it's, you know it's really a two-way thing. It depends on the listening as well as the speaking. So it's it's not just uh, you know it can feel like a performance sitting on a stage, but it's not really meant to be like that. And to try and listen, all of us, uh, to hear into even if the words don't quite match, but to just listen into this different way of communicating. It's not talking about something, but trying to reflect on this, this path. And so tonight I would really like to begin to pivot again to really consider some of the the dharma in relationship to the context of the the world that we're in at this time, which I don't have to paint a full picture for you to for us all to know what a what a challenging moment we're in as a planet and a this sort of planetary moment that we're that we're all involved with. Um, where there's a great sense of urgency and a great sense of emergency and a multiple crisis that we're facing. And none of us are outside of the impact of that. Um, And there's something about this moment that is both really terrifying and overwhelming, but also potentially profoundly awakening. And so it's it's a very intense. And we're in this very intense, and things are getting more intense. So it's a very important for us to be able to have this kind of a practice, um, to be able to withstand uh, what we're all facing and what we're all in, and to know where to resource and how to resource ourselves. Nisargadatta, who was a realized teacher from Mumbai in India, contemporaries, passed over now, he said, practice is to use the mind, to know the mind, so you can go beyond the mind. I think this really sums up the whole path very well, in a way, is that we're applying the mind 
giving a mind a task. Um, and in a way, a mind just left to itself, to its own patterns, it, you know, it just tends to wander into places of suffering and reverie and worry and anxiety and planning and so on. So to employ the mind as we've been doing in the service of the path, the path activity, to really get to know the mind, to get to befriend it, to see it, to know the patterns, to become familiar with its tendencies and to apply the medicine of the Dharma, but also to go beyond the boundaries of how we define ourselves, this world, the thoughts that we have, to go beyond this, the, in the Heart Sutra, the Gate Gate, beyond, beyond, going beyond. Um, not somewhere else, but perhaps beyond to deepen here. So these practices that we've been doing this week have already been supporting this process of applying the mind to reflect on its nature and to contemplate what is it to actually leap beyond. In the Heart Sutra it talks about, in some translations, going beyond the the dream-thinking mind, or leaping beyond the walls of the mind. And this, as Kitty Sai was talking about, it employs a radical reflection going back to the root, going back to the source, turning the mind back to listen into its own nature, to listen beyond and beneath the flow of time, the flow of coming and going, to begin to connect with a timeless presence, timeless presence of the our being in its natural state, the luminosity of that. And in that way, beginning to, that, to be able to reflect on the nature of mind and see through the spells of illusion that we live under, the assumptions that we make that aren't according to reality. And we do this internally in the practice. For example, something very simple like contemplating change in Nietzsche and realizing how many assumptions we make of permanence. And so that we can do this internally so that we can begin to dissolve these illusions that we live on under, under and labor under, the biggest one being this illusion of having a sensuality of this me that sits on the throne, this self that's often uninvestigated, that, that we're always trying to placate and uplift and find a, you know, like it has its, its projects and plans and so on and it's upset. So this, this story of me, and that's in the way the biggest illusion ultimately that we labor under. So to be able to deconstruct that and see space in it, and it's not to say that we don't you know, function through the sense of self or the sense of self doesn't arise. But it's, it's to be able to also not be completely defined by that and to see that it's, it's okay that we can actually let go or release from its obligations of the self. We can actually feel some peace, some release, some or arriving here in, in, a, in presence, not always going somewhere else. 
So in the way, same way, this breaking the spell, not only internally, but externally, the illusions that we live under that have brought us to this state of environmental collapse that we're going through, um, the systems that we've built that are built on layers of, of assumptions and illusions For example, we had Thanksgiving today, and that's, there's a whole narrative around that, a historical narrative. If you're not a First Nation people, you're connected with family getting together, connecting with this lovely story about being, you know, arriving and being given a meal and helping the first settlers to survive here, and gratitude and so on. But really, it, it raises out the decimation the genocide of the First Nation people, the cultural decimation the, that's still going on, the invisibility, the erosion of rights, the breaking of treaties, the invasion of land, the killing of the buffalo. You know, so all of these pieces are, are raised out of the myth of Thanksgiving. So this is why it's not called a Thanksgiving retreat anymore. So it's helping to break the spell. Breaking the spell of what the U.S. was built on, breaking the spell in like my home country of Britain where I grew up. You know, there's a tremendous amount of need to break the spell of the impact of, of the colonial project. And, it's, and instead, it's gone into reverse. <laughs> and to call itself Great Britain again, it's like, really? We're going to go back there? <laughs> You have a passport, change the passport, now it's Great Britain again. It's like, so it's this denial, this inability to actually see beneath the myths that we live under. So in the Dharma is really the, about breaking the spells of illusion so that we, even if that's painful, it's a necessary part of waking up, waking up out of the sleep that's actually dangerous for us to be in. And at this moment, we can't afford to be asleep. We have to, we have to wake up and see this tremendous threat that's, that, we're, that we're facing collectively. We are you know, built on this assumption of ownership, endless growth, <laughs> completely disconnected with the realities of living on a finite planet with finite resources. Last year, there was um, Captain Kirk, if you remember, William Shatner, the, the, <laughs> the Canadian actor who played Captain Kirk in Star Trek. He went up to space last year, and Jeff Bezos was taking people up into space, and he took him. And when he came back, he eventually, he came back very full of grief and tears and was trying to say something. And eventually he came out with a statement, so I'd like to read it to you. I had thought going into space would be the ultimate catharsis of that connection I had been looking for between all living things. That being up there would be the next beautiful step to understanding the harmony of the universe. In the film Contact, when Jodie Foster's character goes into space and looks up into the heavens, she lets out an astonished whisper. They should have sent a poet. I had a different experience because I discovered that the beauty isn't out there, it's down here, 
with all of us. Leaving that behind made my connection to our tiny planet even more profound. It was among the strongest feelings of grief I have ever encountered. The contrast between the vicious coldness of space and the warm nurturing of earth below filled me with overwhelming sadness. Every day we are confronted with the knowledge of further destruction of earth at our hands, the extinction of animal species, of flora and fauna, things that took five billion years to evolve, and suddenly we will never see them again because of the interference of humankind. It filled me with dread. My trip to space was supposed to be a celebration. Instead, it felt like a funeral. In the Dharma, we, it's the art of being realistic. We're practicing the art of being realistic. To see, to see it's not, the, it's not a, an escapism in the way that we would like it to be. You know, that we don't have to feel anything, we don't have to go through anything difficult, that we're just sort of going up and up and up into some peaceful bubble and hope to stay there. That's what I thought when I ordained. I thought, I'm just going to live in a hut in the forest and like sort of sit on some kind of pink cloud and just sort of float above it all. You know, and I was in such a, in for such a shock. First of all, where we lived was freezing cold. I had no electricity for five years. <laughs> this was, and I was living with people I didn't really, I would, I've never would have chosen to live with, just put it like that. <laughs> so, and it was hard. We were like building a monastery up at, you know, four in the morning. The days went on till 10 at night. We didn't eat afternoon. We were sitting up all night meditations once a week, year in, year out. So you're always sleep-deprived, hungry, cold, miserable, conflicted. And I just didn't know where that nibbana cloud went. And, you know, until I actually one day realized that um, I was about to murder someone because I was so upset about something really insignificant or leave, I just, I just got so upset and so angry about someone had let the... We had this little wood, wood stove. In the winter, we'd sort of, like, you know, boil some water on it and heat some water to wash. And the person whose duty it was to keep it going let it go out. So when we got back in the evening, it was freezing, and I just felt... I just sort of felt all this anger. And it was so intense. I, I, my pattern was either to, you know... was actually to walk away or... But I so I was either going to be consumed by this or leave or but it was a really profound moment because I couldn't really move. And Ajahn Chai used to say, when you can't go up, you can't go down, you can't go back, you can't go forward, that's when the practice really begins. It's when you really have to you know find a whole different place to relate to the experience of suffering. And so I was in that place, and so I just you know, I started to do what I've been training to do, which was practice. <laughs> <laughs> and apply mindfulness. So I was mindfully just with the sensation. And it was so intense. I thought, actually, I don't really need any heat. I could actually heat the whole monastery right now. <laughs> you know, so I was just like breathing with this like intense heat. But what I started to realize is when I was with that pain, with awareness, because I had nowhere else to go and I couldn't go anywhere with my mind with it, that it alchemically started to change the energy of the anger 
And I began to feel this melting and opening to a place where I started to feel a lot of compassion for, for all of us, for the world. I just felt this very profound compassion. And then sort of, thought, well, I've got to go and do something now, so I'm going to chop some wood and make a fire. But it was a really important turning point in my practice when I realized that everything was workable and that disturbance wasn't in the way, it was actually the path. And the greater the suffering in a certain way, the greater the potential to develop the skills to meet it. And so this practice is really helpful for this time because at the moment we're still in a lot of denial, we're still trying to shift the furniture around, we're still trying to pretend that we're not in the situation that we are in. I don't know how far down we have to go before we're really willing to wake up. Uh, but at some point we have to really wake up and meet what's happening to our planet. This is our only home. This is, this is it. And in, and in that awakening, as Dawn was saying yesterday, it's not an individual thing. We can't do this alone. So we're in this curriculum together. Yes, and it's a very interesting moment because in one way we're atomizing more and more into all sorts of you know, multiple silos <laughs> and multiple divisions. And at the same time, at the very moment when we need to be working in a collective way. So we're, we're in this profound place of being... You know, this curriculum has put us in a very, it's a very, you know, in terms of the universal awakening agenda, it's, it, I've, part of me is like going, well, this is very interesting. You know, this is very high stakes. And here we are, what are we going to do? And so this leap, you know, this, this feeling of it is possible to leap beyond. We don't, you know, we can make these shifts. We can make a shift. You know, but we have to make a shift internally to be willing to meet the curriculum. And to actually shift our understanding, look through a different lens to understand that we don't, we're not in control. We're con in control of destruction, but we're not in control of what we thought we were. We don't own what we, we don't own Mother Nature. We don't own nature. And that we're not apart from nature. We destroy nature, we destroy ourselves. You know, so this, these ideas of being separate from each other, separate from nature, are part of the illusion. And that in that there's an invitation to take this leap into, well, what are we? Urquhart Tolle, Tolle says, ultimately, you're not a person, but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. So in this Dharma field, we're actually when we're letting go of what we assumed ourselves to be, we're opening into a field of consciousness, a field of awareness. And this, in a way, is, is the frontier. It's not the conquering of more places on earth. It's to understand what we are, to understand that we're part of a cosmology, that we are part of nature. We are participa participatory beings in a sacred web of life in a cosmology and we are conduits of that we are part of that and to shift the lens from being me and my individual journey 
separate and apart from everything, into the practices that help us really connect as a lived experience of being in a more unified field according to the actual deeper reality. And within that as part of nature, the Andean indigenous peoples of South America use the word Pachamama for nature. Recognizing, it's a word that recognizing, recognizes nature as a spirit. As, a, as um, in the Amaya and Shipibo and Quechua languages, Pachamama has the connotation of world mother, earth mother, goddess, as a, as a conscious being with profound intelligence. And portrays Mother Nature is suffused with this consciousness. Every part is, is a living, speaking, aware being, dynamic, mysterious. And this is the understanding of the indigenous world, the wisdom of the indigenous world, of, of which are all of our roots, pre-patriarchal religion that we became enamored with sky gods, but... This is our, <laughs> and left the earth behind, which we're still trying to do in spaceships. But we have to return to earth. <laughs> we have to, like William Shatner, he got that message all right. <laughs> so this is a, this returning, this great return. It's a great return into, it's not just sort of returning into some static, you know, nothingness. You know, awareness is dynamic, consciousness, you know, it's, it's there to be unfolded, to be explored, to be known directly, tasted, tasted as a resting, and it's the most profound dimension, non-dual conscious, consciousness, non-dual, timeless, deathless, presence within the manifested, the unmanifested and the manifested, these different dimensions to be explored, to be tasted, to be known. And at the same time, to be having, if we're not part of the curriculum, the curriculum's coming to us. If we don't engage the awakening, the awakening's going to be, is happening for us. We're being forced by the reality that we're in. As I was standing that night in the nun's cottage, uh, forced to have to go to a different place in myself. So last night, Juno was talking about anxiety and really recognizing that she was feeling what's happening to the earth. Feeling, I mean, we feel, we we aren't apart from what's happening on the planet. And particularly if you're sensitive, you know, often we, we've learned to live in very defended and armored ways, but actually our body is like a receptacle. It's like very sensitive, actually. The mind and body, when it's tuned, it's receiving. It's like a massive satellite dish. <laughs> And, you know, it's also anatta, it's empty, that you can let things move through, but some of the things that are moving through are, are, are very difficult at this time. 
So it's, you know, sometimes it is helpful to have anatta. I get quite a lot of panic attacks about what's happening. Deep feelings of despair and anxiety and overwhelm and grief and rage and upset. You know, these waves that come through and this is a sensitive being. Working in South Africa and that feel, you know, very sensitized to a feel that had a lot of trauma in it. And could really see that, you know, people would make a decision and the the frontier nature of being as you know, as a a settler in that in those lands, colonizer, the the culture around that is was to really def- to be very defended. To, to not allow yourself to live in and to, to be in a system of apartheid, you have to actually close down your sensitivity if you're part of the dominant oppression, a culture that's oppressing, then you, then you... And I always felt like if that's the price to have to pay, <laughs> then it's time to leave, you know. So to, it's not easy to live with sensitivity. And in a meditator, you're actually becoming more sensitive. But, you know, the Buddha taught when gathering samadhi, you have to, we have to learn to withstand the impingement of the senses. And we can do that without becoming defended and closed down. Yes, that's different than holding boundaries skillfully, psychologically, knowing when to withdraw. You know, we're not always having to be on the front lines. But to realize that actually we're supposed to be sensitive, we're supposed to be feeling these things. We're part of the immune system. This is the immune system of the planet working, waking us. She's talking to us. She's screaming at us. So if we're feeling it, then right, we're getting the message. It's not, we're not apart from nature. We're, we're nature. So, you know, to, but we don't also want to be overwhelmed so we can hear the message, breathe with it. And then, you know, we're talking about the bodhisattva path. The bodhisattva is the one that is willing to allow suffering to move through their being so it can be released, suffering beings to find harbor. You know, and this isn't just, you know, forms that we see, but it can be energy, (laughs) the energetic experience of this time. There's a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, and we can... Touch that and invoke like Kuan Yin, invoke the power of the Bodhisattva. Kuan Yin is a very real presence, ancient being. They're very real protector beings. It's the cosmology of Buddhism is full of them. <laughs> the Buddha said, when you go into a place of trouble, do these chants that we've been doing in the morning. They're protector, they're protector chants in the Theravada, in Mahayana, in all the schools. He would send his disciples into places of trouble and difficulty and recommend that they go to help soothe and calm and, and what could be a large catastrophe, bring it down to a smaller level. So not to underestimate to work, working at this level as well of frequency, of sending a vibration, of invoking. We're in a cosmology of beings here, not just what we see through our eyes. You know, working with Baba Mandaza Kandemwa in, in, from Zimbabwe, he's one of our elders in 
the center there that we founded in South Africa, he's a holder of the spirit and a conduit for the earth. And just to see his relationship, how he works and moves through nature and through the world and is reading things in ways that we're completely missing all the time. The water, and we went to the river with him. I mean, there's a river near the center, you know, in the hot days there in the summer, we sort of go and swim in it. Oh, we just throw ourselves in the rivers. Going with him was a whole different experience. So you're not allowed to go in until you've paid respects. <laughs> and we're going to sit here and do a ceremony and then you're going to go and make an offering to the river spirits. And then I'm going to tell you how you're going to go in. And then, and by the time we got into the water, I felt like I was in a whole different realm, a whole different relationship, a whole different awareness. So this is, a, this is radical reclamation, radical reflection, reconnecting to a living, speaking universe, cosmology, nature, listening, letting, you know, just letting, rather than going out and objectifying, this mind is trained to objectify. You've got a language, oh, that's a tree, I know that, what tree should we plant? So to actually soften the gaze, let things come to you, let nature come to you, go quiet. You know, like we've scared so many beings away, they won't, they were this, oh, humans. <laughs> so to be real quiet, like if you go in again in, in, in Southern Africa and go out into these large areas that have been designated as, as um, reserves for, for, the, for the, we call them wild animals, but anyway, wild animals, for them, for them to live as, as much as possible with the rhythms of, of you know, where they, they, are domin- they are the dominant species there. And you're going into their space. And eventually, you, you start to really quieten down and become very receptive and very still. And often, Kitty Sarah and I would go out, we'd have to go with rangers, we'd go out and walk. It's actually quite edgy because you could turn around the corner and meet a lion or, or a, a rhino or something. So your whole skin becomes very alert. You're just like really, all your senses are really resonant and feeling and and picking up the messages. And then if you go with people that have lived a long time in the bush and they're reading the messages. I was with some San people once in in Botswana and they were a friend of of myself and who had lived with them for a long time and had quite a strong relationship. We were taken out and the whole time as they were walking through the bush, they were were like feeling the land. They were just like going like this, just walking and they they were like birds talking, just connecting and oh, this here, this here, this here. And, it, you know, it's, there's something about the way we walk. We're so stiff, you know. We're like, kind of, so the radical reclamation of the body to decolonize the body from the ways that it's held with these deep patternings. In this work of the Dhamma, we're really feeling into the patternings of the body, you know, that go along with a lot of conditioning and narrative. And 
sense this samadhi, this inquiry, this working with the feeling tone, with the sensation, and beginning to release out of these shapes and forms and constrictions. So we're reclaiming this, the inner wildness of the psyche of the body. Centuries of conditioning, centuries of oppression, <laughs> centuries of projection, if I'm, so the, you know, these voices of you know not being worthy, all of these, you know, like seeing them, releasing them. So this is the work that helps us become a vehicle to better serve this moment. So this curriculum is, you know, it's a it's a very difficult shift that we're making as a collective global collective, because there's a lot of dismembering happening. Sometimes I sort of feel like we're on some massive shamanic journey together where you're, you're dismembered, everything you've known yourself to be, your sense of self, the structures you've been in, the certainties, because you have, we have to be reshaped. We have to come into a new shape somehow, and we can't do that until things are broken down. I remember again with Baba Mandaza, I was asked to give, a, I was at a mindfulness conference in South Africa and they hosted it in, in um, Marapang, which is an area where they found the, uh, some of the original first skeletons of human presence in, in Southern Africa. So they, they've sort of built this very beautifully done museum and meeting place and the conference was there. So here I was, I was asked to give some talk on mindfulness, but I was awake all night and feeling this disturbance. I was feeling like the spirits of the land, and I was just feeling, I, you know, here I am, first of all, we're sitting on this ancient land of peoples, that, you know, original peoples. Are we respecting this land? Secondly, I'm a European that has this awful history, ancestral history, <laughs> absolutely awful history in Southern Africa, uh, well, across all of Africa, across the world. <laughs> and, and thirdly, we're bringing an Asian lineage <laughs> to Africa. Africa, and I, I, I just don't really feel comfortable with this whole setup, you know. And so I'm sitting there with all of this, and I was, had a lot of emotion, a lot of emotion, and I just, I was like wrecked by the morning. And so I kind of went early to try and gather myself. I saw Baba Mandaza was sitting there. So I went to sit next to him and I was, I was just telling him about this night and, and I started to apologize for, you know, the British. <laughs> and I was sort of like weeping and, you know, going on and, you know, and, uh, and he's listening to all this and he said, you, you know, Mama, he, he was sort of like, we call him Bobby, call me Mama, you know, Mama. He said, you know, these are old stories. We have to have a new story. We have to have a new story if we're going to make it. We've somehow got to have a new story together. And it wasn't, he wasn't saying that lightly because, as you know, another time he was telling us, you know, he lived in Zimbabwe, was decimated by the British. Civil, you know, it was, it was terrible, but... He was sitting there saying that he realized at a certain point he, he had to work with his enemies 
which was basically us, you know, me, <laughs> not personally, but representing, you know, the white people that had and the British, you know, he had to, he had to overcome. And, you know, he's an international teacher. So he was talking about this, and it was, it was really moving and very profound, his own personal journey, and very exemplary, is that we don't, yes, there are, there are, um, there is restoration that has to be made. But we also, there's also something about this moment where we have to create a new story, a new vision together that is more collaborative, inclusive, and to, to actually embody that. And how do we do that? Well, we listen to, in this practice, and Kittisara is guiding us, this radical reflection. We're not turning the mind back into a dead space. We're turning the mind back into its own deep prajna paramita, what Ajahn Chah called the living dharma. There's a spoken dharma, there's the dharma we see in the texts, there's a dharma we read, and then there's the living dharma that's actually you have complete access to and is guiding us through our intuitive prajna wisdom, wise understanding. We hear that when we quiet down enough. And so this, this, so the invitation of this time is many of the structures. It's not to say we can't apply the mind. We need to apply everything. I mean, as someone said, I was listening to the other day talking about this subject. It's like it's about now about increasing the odds. <laughs> it's about actually leaning into whatever we can to save as much as possible. And for that, we need everyone. We need all of us to do our whatever piece we can do. And what piece is that? And this is where we, we listen. We can listen into this intuitive heart and hear the steps we can take. And that heart is capable of, a con- of you know, leaps. It's leaping beyond the walls, leaping beyond the old stories, leaping beyond the old resentments, leaping beyond the things that are unhealed and unstuck. You know, it's not to say that we don't he- work to heal, but we can't stay stuck there. We can't stay stuck. So we, this being, this vehicle, this purification helps us be a, a better conduit to be of service at this time. So, Elar Nost, who said, the poet, do not be dismayed by the brokenness of the world. All things break, and all things can be mended. Not with time, as they say, but with intention. So go, love intentionally, extravagantly, unconditionally. The broken world waits in darkness for the light that is you. In the bodhicitta, the bodhisattva, it is about the cultivation of unconditional love. And this is, uh, this is so important. It's, 
yes, there's challenges. Yes, we have to challenge systems. Yes, we have to stand up. Yes, we have to fight back in certain ways and places and so on. At this time, we can't, you know, we can't. We have to have courage. We have to call out what's wrong, as the Buddha did. Buddha was, I mean, if you wanted to take on the Buddha, you'd have to sort of know your stuff because you come away, you know, shredded. I mean, he was fierce. You know, he would take, he would challenge what was, he would change systems. He would go up against the system of the time and actually was successful in changing what he could. He couldn't always, he didn't always succeed. He'd try and stop a war, try to stop his own people being slaughtered, actually. And he couldn't. He tried three times. The point was he tried. <laughs> you know, he just go, oh, well, it's all karma, never mind. You know, he got out there and, and, you know, negotiated water rights between warring tribes and on and on, you know, extended his efforts to heal the world in any way he could and encourage his disciples to do the same. So although there's suffering, and although suffering is caused by our not seeing clearly, suffering is the cause also is very important because suffering is the cause for our liberation. When when we've all collectively suffered, (laughs) gone to the, I don't know how far we're still going to go down this but when we start to wake up, it will be, it's the cause. It's, you know, it's what's waking us up. And at a certain point, we realize we, there's, there's not many places we can go. I mean, there's a massive amount of reactivity happening. But eventually, we're going to have to come to the heart. And we're going to have to come to love. Because it's the only thing that will save us, really. And so even though we might have to have boundaries and challenges in this practice, we cultivate going to a place in our being and a place in this reality where there is where all things are resident in this one awareness. There is no separation. And this awareness, its nature by its nature, is healing and loving. And so we can invite all of the whole range of beings from the demons to the devas. And to, to hold it all, bring love, the illumination of love, that all beings are ultimately seeking redemption in the most strange and odd ways, in healing. And we can quicken that in these practices. It's not a small thing to practice the Brahma-viharas and radiate that out into the world. It has an effect. It's not a small thing to feel the suffering and transform it into into love. This is the work of the Bodhisattva. So as the teacher of Nagarjuna, Sahara said, while suffering increases, bliss increases. The greater the mental afflictions, the mightier the primordial wisdom. 
the larger the pile of wood, the greater the blaze. There's something about this level of teaching that is really extraordinary (laughs) and challenging. But all I can say is that Ajahn Chah, his primary transmission to us was to have courage, to take courage. And when he was asked once, how did he do what he did to, from being a, you know, grown up in a small village, in a farming community, leaving school at 13, living a very simple life, landing up being a, an international teacher, profoundly realized, head of about 100 monasteries. I'm sure he didn't start off thinking that was going to happen. When he was asked, how did you do this? How did you become who you were? And he said, I dare to do. I dare to do. So for us to take, as Guru was saying the other day, that, was it Dawn? Dawn, Dawn, I think you were saying about borrowing courage. Guru was saying? (laughs) Well, we're all saying... Let's borrow each other's courage. And there are so many historical spiritual activists that have profoundly changed the world and overcome impossible, seeming impossible challenges. You know, one of the joys of our work in South Africa was to have some times when we were able to be in the presence of Mr. Mandela. And he's got a very regal presence, a lot of humor, and exudes this deep wisdom and compassion in a way that's where his presence just transforms a, a room. We were at once one gathering where there are these world leaders, and on a, on, this was in Britain, and um, on a stage, and they were giving these, I think it was the era of Clinton and Tony Blair and a whole bunch of others are giving these sort of ideologically, politically orientated talks. And Mr. Mandela was there. And when he came to speak, he gave this Dharma talk. And he said, really, if you want to be a leader, you have to know how to put other people first. And then when he got off the stage, they were literally almost fighting each other to who was going to take his arms. You know, these, <laughs> these were like kind of like nudging each other out the way and because that's the sort of presence he had. And, but that didn't come from nowhere. I mean, it's, I think a lot was innate to who he, who he is, who he was. But it came from him taking something so bitter, 27 years in prison and a decimation of his family, taking that bitter pill, he could have come out, you know, and called for war. And that, that would have happened. He came out and he called for love. He kind of lifted. It wasn't the end of the problems. He couldn't solve everything. But he, he came out to lift the consciousness of the planet, really, for a short while. And this is, this is what we're called to, to take the bitterness and to, to transmute it, our own and the world's. And it's not us doing it. We're conduits. The Dharma does this work. We allow the Dharma to do this work. Our work is just to meet each moment best we can and to apply the medicine of the practice when we remember to do it. (laughs) And when we don't remember, we start suffering and then we remember.
So again, as Sahara said, just as the ocean's salty water is taken into the clouds and turns sweet, the stable mind works to benefit others, turning poison into healing nectar. Let's take this beautiful practice and dharma that we've been gifted by so many profound practitioners over centuries and deeply receive this gift and allow it to support us and inform us as we start to pivot in our retreat towards the ending of the retreat and applying this to the ills of the world at this time. Doing that with joy, focus, determination, love, joining the lineages of the awakened ones, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, the saints and sages, the Dhamma protectors, the beings of light, elemental beings working together to do the best we can at this moment of our planetary, evolutionary unfolding. Please uh, rest if you need to rest or if you've got some extra juice to keep going, keep going. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.